The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Hi, I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm so honored and delighted to introduce you to two of my colleagues for joining me on today's panel discussion to talk about the H-1B registration program. We have Kenya Sanders and T Timothy Sachet, whom we call TJ. So, of course, as all of you know, how the H-1B CAT works, we have a maximum of 65,000 numbers, out of which 6,500 uh, 6, are kept aside for Chile and Singapore. We have 20,000 extra for those who completed their masters from a US nonprofit or public university. And once the regular coda is used up, then those with a master's, U.S. master's degree from a nonprofit or public university can file to put, to apply under the master's quota, but you don't really file separately. The government sort of rearranged it from like a year or two, year, two years ago. So now this year from 2021, uh, from 2020 calendar year, but fiscal year 2021, we are, the USCIS has implemented the new electronic pre-registration system for CAT subject H-1B candidates. And of course, it's changing the way the lottery system was used in the past. And with this new system, um, the lottery is run on for certain pre-registered candidates. So I'm going to invite you, Kenya, to talk about how this is going to work. Okay, so under the new pre-registration uh, system, uh, USCIS will designate a certain period of time for employers or their attorneys to complete and submit an online form to register each candidate the employer intends to file H-1B petitions for. The online pre-registration forms require some basic information about the employer at, and the candidate. Now, at the completion of the preset pre-registration period, USCIS will run the lottery system on the pre-registered candidates, and then will inform the employer uh, and the attorney which candidates have been picked for that fiscal year, and then provide 90 days within which to file a completed H-1B petition on behalf of the selected candidates. So are they going to notify them by email or mail, regular mail, or we don't know? No, they will um, send a, a mail uh, to the email address, and then you have to log in to your account, um, and then you will have a notice in your account um, where they're saying they, that they have been selected. Okay. And USCIS will be using my USCIS portal for the pre-registration process. Currently, we use this portal to file I-90s and, and 400s and other forms. And so it's the same portal that they will be using for the pre-registration. Um, okay, thank you. And what's the time frame? What are we looking at, TJ? Sure, so for the upcoming fiscal year, the 2021 fiscal year, which runs from October 1st, 2020 to September 30th, 2021, USCS is designated is at noon Eastern, March 1st, through noon Eastern on March 20th as the period. So it's during this period where- Which the, is not even one full work week as we were talking earlier 
because you start on a Sunday afternoon and you get done. Yeah, it's not quite three because they're going to give you. Oh, presumably, it was supposed to be three weeks, uh, but now you kind of get one less day because it starts at noon and mm. then it ends at noon. So okay. you get one less day, mm-hmm. um, and then during it's during this period where the employer or the employer's attorney um, or authorized representative must complete and submit the electronic registration for each of their candidates that they tend to file uh, an HOB cap case for, and if. The, um, after the, the submission, they're required to pay a $10 registration fee for each candidate. And then registrations, a, a petitioner or an employer for the, I'm sorry, a, an attorney for the petitioner can file up to 250 um, beneficiaries at one time. And that's not to say that they one company can't file 500. You just need to then create a separate account and do another 250 for that one or come into the same account and do it again for another 250. Um, so there's 250 at a time, and the beneficial thing is you can pay once for the 250. Not saying you only pay $10 total, but 250 times 10, you can pay all that at once instead of going $10, $10, $10, $10. Um, but it's also really important to keep in mind to, to keep track of, of what individuals you are you know, submitting the pre-registration for, because if you include the same individual twice in the pre-registration, the USCIS system will actually automatically reject, when you hit submit your registration, the USCIS system will automatically reject that candidate. It won't reject all 250, just that candidate who's been uh, you know, put in there twice. Oh, I see. So at least, in a way, if there is a human error that occurs, at least it's not going to penalize all the other candidates. Exactly. And, and not that one should look for it, but mm-hmm. at least it's better. Plus, you don't want to invalidate it or cause complications for you and your company. So regarding the registration process, as we know, the USCIS has recently conducted a couple of webinars on this pre-registration process for employers and legal representatives. Maybe some of you have already participated in such seminars. Currently, the registration system is not open until March 1st of 2020. However, attorneys can now begin creating a legal representative account on my USCIS portal, so we can start doing that for companies like you that are on the call. If our if the multi law firm is um, helping you and your company with this process, employers can begin to create their H one B registrant account only on February twenty fourth of twenty twenty. But it is important that you as employers do not select either the applicant, the petitioner or the requester account types so it wouldn't even be the petitioner type no so they they essentially will have there are three account types that you can set up one is for a petitioner you know standard you know type of form that you would file with a petitioner one is for a legal representative that covers everything if you're going to be a legal representative on any of the forms and then one is kind of a h&b registrant account it's separate solely unique for this new registration so although you will be the petitioner on the H-1B forms, when you're, when you're logging in and signing up for the new system, you do not want to create the, the petitioner account, you want to create the regist- H-1B registrant account. So it's, just a, it's a distinction that will, you know, if you fix it now and do it right now, it will save time in the long run. Okay. Right, because the H-1B um, registrant account is being created just for the uh, cap season uh, for for the H-1B pre-registration process. So the um, uh, and employers can only set up that account starting from February 24th. Even though legal representatives can set up their own accounts, 
but you cannot create or submit any registrations until March 1st. And as you said, Sheila, already the, the registration period starts from noon um, on March 1st, which is a Sunday, and goes until noon of March 20th, which is a Friday. And you can only create and submit. You can't like pre-create, you know, before that date you are only able to access that registration system or the forms only on March 1st. Now, if an attorney is going to register for an employer, the employer is still required to have an H-1B registrant account because the, the attorney's account and the employer's account gets linked and you know there is a process set for the employer to validate what the attorney has created. So, um, so we're going to just give a like a basic overview of the the registration process. So the employer creates their registrant account on February twenty fourth, twenty twenty. The attorney will then prepare, starting from March first, the attorney will prepare the registration uh, information as well as a form G twenty eight. So once the attorney prepares the form G twenty eight. The attorney is provided a one-time passport that the attorney has to send to the employer who will then log into their H-1B registrant account and select a button called enter representative passport. Once they enter the representative passcode, they will then have access to the G-28 that has been created by the attorney as well as the registration that has been created by the attorney for all of the employer's uh, candidates. And then the employer can then review that information and um, one, if everything is correct, they will then uh, enter their name into a field and, you know, and they accept you know, whatever the attorney has created. Once that is done, the, the ball bounces back to the attorney who will then submit the registration and pay the fees. It really sounds like a back and forth and just right. adding layers. It would have been so much easier for the attorney the way we prepare our clients packages now just to do the whole thing from beginning to end because if an employer is traveling and they need to set it up, now they need to do it, then notify us that we need to do it. And it's a short window of opportunity for all these cap cases. So in terms of what information has to be included in each registration for each employee, um, the employer or its re legal representative, a law firm like ours or whoever it is, will provide certain basic information on both the company or the employer and the sponsored foreign national and indicate whether the registration is for the master's cap. So TJ, what are the specific details on the employee or beneficiary that must be included as well as on the employer? Sure, so it's, it's not much, it's not much information. So for each beneficiary um, or employee, you just need the, the full name, the date of birth, the country of birth, the country of citizenship, the gender, and the passport information, mm -hmm. the passport number, I'm sorry. Um, so not, not too much. Now for the petitioner, you just need the, the legal name and any uh, you know doing business as name, the federal employer identification number, their address, and the authorized signatory, along with the authorized signatory's contact information. Um, so is, that, is it the name of the authorized signatory that is required or is it more like a title? Because what if I have a HR director that signs all my forms 
So can I say HR manager, HR director, because that HR director may be gone in six weeks yeah. or a month. I believe it's the right. specific individual along with the, the, the title right. of that individual. And, and they indicated during the, the UOCS webinars recently that that can change from, you know, from submission of the registration to the filing of the H-1B petition. So if something changes in the meantime, you're not going to have your H-1 rejected solely on that basis. Good. Um, and it's also, you know, when drafting the registration, users are, are going to be able to review and ed edit the information as many times as they need. So it's not like once you insert it in, you're done and that's it. Um, and it will, you know, they've indicated that it will automatically save. So you click on the next or, or something to that effect, the information you've input it will save. And this is all IT computer systems, so you know things can go wrong. Um, and then this information that you put in there will be available for 30 days. So if you don't do anything for 30 days, you will then lose the information. Shouldn't be an issue here because we only have 20 days to submit the registration. Um, however, once the, the registration is submitted, edits aren't permitted. You submitted it, you submitted it. Um, but we do think that users should be able to go ahead that, hey, I submitted it with the wrong beneficiary name or something, go ahead and delete the registration, then recre recreate and submit a new registration so long as the registration period is, is still open and you would also need to pay that additional $10 fee again. Um, I just wanted to add um, that during the registration, you also have to indicate if it's a master's cap case. Yes, Correct. exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. So once the registration has been completed at the end of the pre-registration period, if the USCIS determines that it has received more registrations than required to reach the regular cap and the master's cap, it will conduct a lottery, similar, I guess, to what was previously done, and then conduct a lottery for those who are not selected, uh, who are also eligible for the master's cap. So that's the other option that they're talking about. I was also thinking, as TJ was talking, what happens if the employer genuinely, because we have to show that there was a bona fide job offer and all that, but what if the employee is no longer available I genuinely thought I would do it, but now I'm not going to file the petition because the person says, you know what, my mother is not well and I want to go back to my home country to stay with my family and I thank you for your job offer, but I'm not interested, so don't waste your time and money filing it. Right. I mean, they have said because, you know, in, in the system, when you're for each candidate, it will say, you know, submitted initially. And then once they are selected, it will say selected. And for those who have not been selected, it will still say submitted. So what they're saying is that if subsequently, um, not everybody who is selected files, they can go back and select from the registration that have already been submitted. So, so the employer, it's almost like having a ticket that the employer can now click on a different employee's name that they want to select? No, they, the employer they can't. can't. It's still going to be a random selection by USCIS. It's and it won't benefit lottery. that particular employer? No. 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 It's, it's kind of like, you know, they always say every year, uh, you know, numbers that aren't used go back in the cap. Yeah, it's kind of similar situations here, but it's all yeah, electronic. How, how often have how we that, seen it go back in the well, cap? Well, and we don't know how it's done, and nobody's held accountable, and people have asked for information, and we just don't know how the whole thing. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors that right. unfortunately is going on with this. So, Kenya, what else happens with this process? Okay, so once uh, the selected, they said that they would notify the employer and or the attorney of each selected registration. What will happen is they will get an email saying that we have mail in our account. Mm -hmm. 
So we go and log into our account and then it will show selected. I guess then we click on the selected and we have access to the notice of selection. And that notice of selection will have a 90 day window within which that selected petition for that selected candidate has to be filed. Um, and we anticipate that it, it will the earliest it will start the 90 day will be April 1st. And they will also designate in that notice to which service center that petition needs to be filed. So there is an anticipation that the service centers that are right now that are designated based on certain criteria may not be the same for the H-1B filings. So an employer or company could have it in multiple jurisdictions, the filing, depending on the job title, the job duty. could be, you that know, we don't, we don't know, but they said the service center will be designated in the notice of selection. Yeah, and, and I'm thinking that, you know, all filing locations now are based on petitioner's location, so it's going to match, it'll most likely match up with that. It will help present the, prevent a situation where you erroneously file with the wrong service center, Hopefully with this notice, it's I don't even need to think about where my location is versus where I'm supposed to file. The notice is telling me right, right. off the bat. Okay. Uh, TJ, anything else you wanted to add? No, I mean, I mean just a you know, follow-up, and you know, we just talked about recently, just, you know, USA says they have a, a procedure in place to kind of reopen the cap or put, put these cases on, on a wait list or, or something to that effect, and then, you know, select them again if needed, if the cap isn't met. But and practically speaking, I think, and if you're not selected in that initial round, I wouldn't hold out hope that you're going to, you know, come come September, going to be selected. USCIS has indicated that the online case status, if you're selected, will say selected. Um, if you're not selected and not rejected for a duplicate filing, will say, um, I believe it is submitted, application submitted. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. going to stay on the submitted status until September 30th, after which on October 1st, it'll change over to not selected. So you, you, lots of lots of employees may see it stay not select or submit it, uh, but not necessarily. It doesn't mean that you're gonna be selected later. Right. I think that it's gonna stay submitted until the end of the fiscal year. Yeah, that would make sense. That you know, until September thirtieth, so for year. a year and a half, it right. should be there because what if you're for some reason right. they could always go back and select like if they've it. only used, even though they may have picked. 65 plus 20, 85,000 candidates total. What if only you know 65 or 70 have been used? Then the other 15,000 they could again open it up after two or three months. Right. Okay, let's jump to the master's cap registration. Of course, as we all know, there are 20,000 extra slots for individuals who complete the master's degree from a U.S. nonprofit or public universities. What are the qualifications, Kenya? Well, to qualify, one must have completed a master's degree or higher from a qualifying U.S. university. This, the university must be properly accredited by a nationally recognized accrediting agency or association. Pre-accreditation status is also acceptable. The school also must be a public or a private nonprofit institution. So it has to be a public university or if it's a private university, it has to be a private nonprofit. If neither of these two requirements are met, then that degree does not qualify the individual for the master's cap exemption. So if they're going for a private for-profit university, then the master's degree from that university does not qualify the master's cap exemption. Um, if the degree will be awarded after the registration period has closed, 
but within the 90 day filing period, then you still qualify for the master's cap. So just because you're still working on the master's cap during the registration period does not mean that you cannot choose to be in the master's cap. However, you must receive that master's degree within that 90 day period before the H-1B petition is submitted. Now the preamble to the final rule that created the registration system, USCIS had noted that final rule does not alter the general requirement for establishing eligibility at the time the petition is filed. So eligibility for H-1B classification does not need to be demonstrated at the time a registration is submitted. So they also confirmed this um, in the webinar on February 11th. Okay, great. TJ, what about, what are the other, any other requirements? Sure, so I mean, it's, and it, it's, it's also interesting to note that they actually did change the word, you know, the master's cap question between the initial, initial time they released it and the, the recent webinar where it used to say, um, has the beneficiary received a master's to qualify master degree? Now it says something to the effect of has or will the beneficiary. So they clarified that. So it's really good that it's clear. And I think, but it's very important to point out that, okay, let's say you're going to get your master's degree and it will be awarded in, you know, May 15th, 2020, and you got selected filing under the master's cap. Great. Yeah, you got selected. You cannot file your H-1B cap case until after that degree is awarded or after you finish the requirements for the graduation. You don't need to actually so have the physical So if you only get your diploma. degree in June, even though you could apply starting from April 1st, you're going to have a problem. You need to wait. You'll have to wait for whole of month of April, whole month of May, hopefully in early close. June. You're cutting it now close. Mm -hmm. Hopefully mm -hmm. you can file it and yep. it won't be kicked back for some error because now you don't have the luxury of getting the package back and again refiling if it's not right. within yeah. the 90 days. I don't know how there, whether it's like the I-140 filings where even if they denied, you can reuse that same labor certification under the law. I wonder if they're gonna give us some protections, but that's, we I guess have to wait. There's lots of yeah. gray areas yeah. on once you get into the real nitty gritty and complexities mm -hmm. of where things can go wrong. And of course, this is the first time that they're doing it. Right. So there's potential trial and error that might occur. Hopefully not too much, uh, but that's why you need an experienced law firm, somebody that can help you like exactly. our fabulous team here at the exactly. Murthy Law Firm, of course, needless to say, right? right? So listen, the next topic we want to touch upon is the registration and cap cap. As most of you know, uh, an employer or beneficiary is able to change status to H-1B with an H-1B requesting an October 1st start date only if the person, the student or the person is in a non-immigrant status which will continue generally until September 30th, unless of course you have the F1 uh, automatic cap cap extension. What does that mean? I know that Kenya, we've talked about this before, but right. Well, if, if the candidate is in F1 status, the situation is a little different because if the student's F1 status or OPT ends prior to September 30, um, 2020, uh, he, she may be eligible for an automatic cap gap extension until September uh, 30th of 2020, assuming four conditions are met. One is the petition is filed before the expiration of the OPT or end of the grace period. A change of status is requested on the H-1B petition and an October 1st start date is requested and the case is eventually approved. So if 
you know, if, if you file the petition, um, you know, when all of these uh, scenarios are present, um, while the petition is still pending, you have cap gap. If it is denied, then the cap gap provision ends with the date of the denial. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the cap gap extension mm -hmm. starts when the student's current period of F1 status ends, regardless of whether the student is in OPT at that time. If the student is in OPT at the time of filing, then the OPT work authorization also extends until September 30th. Mm -hmm. If the student is not in OPT, then the petition is filed during their 60-day grace period. The student may remain in the U.S. However, they will not be able to work until the H-1B is approved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about those who have got, or what about the 90-day registration? What happens? Sure. So I think a lot of people were, you know, hoping that you know, if I if I submit my letter of registration, does that also give me cap gap benefits? And the and the answer is no. Um, if if you know the 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 registration is selected and let's say your OPT expires on April 15th, in order to benefit from the cap gap provisions, you actually need to file your H-1B petition prior to April 15th. Um, and that's why it's, it's, it's really important that if you are one of these individuals that has a, an early cap gap date, you know, STEM expiring, STEM OPT expiring in April, May, to, to get ready, even if you haven't even even if you haven't submitted your registration and don't know whether you're going to be selected, get your case ready because if you find out you know at the end of March that you're selected and your cap gap period would end on April 9th, you're not going to have much time to file a petition, especially if you need an H1 an LCA and all those things. So it's very important to to look at that look at your own personal situation and, and make sure you plan accordingly. Great. Okay. Um, so as you can see from this summary discussion, this entire CapCap registration process is a major change to the lottery process. There are still many unknowns as we discussed a few minutes ago, in spite of the USCIS webinars and this multi-law firm webinar, et cetera. We here at the multi-law firm are fantastic, experienced, knowledgeable, bright attorneys like TJ and Kenya. All of us are constantly monitoring the situation the law, the regulations, the processes, you know, implementation, if there's going to be problems, so that we can update both the multi.com website, as well as provide more information and clarification, whether it's in a seminar like this or in a multi-bulletin article, to help you all navigate these ever-changing rules. Of course, uh, the multi-law firm, uh, at the multi-law firm, we offer our clients multiple options to help you to navigate the new complex lottery process, the registration system, so that you are actually ready to file the registration um, if you're selected and do it promptly and efficiently on time. Um, again, as I say to people, hopefully everything will work out well. I know this is the first year that the government's trying this registration. And if it doesn't, as many of you have seen at IT Serve Alliance and other companies and other organizations, especially over the last three or four years in the current administration, when it doesn't work, don't be afraid to challenge the government. And at the Muti Law Firm, I know we have been exceptionally um, uh, diligent and determined to fight for justice and fight for the rights for our clients to ensure that the, the government does not 
do things that are in violation of existing law and statute and their own regulations. So on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Kenya Sanders, TJ, and our entire Murthy Law Firm team, we want to thank you for joining us today. We hope this was helpful to give you a better understanding, and we really look forward to continuing to help you and your company with the H-1B pre-registration and registration process, filing your H-1B petitions, getting approvals, and watch you continue to shine and thrive and succeed in this complex environment for immigrants and immigration companies and immigration lawyers. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful afternoon. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.